Sayago, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. Um, it's uh, in International um, Women's Month, so we're going to discuss. Well, how's that? Uh, how's that working out for Native women? And it'll be a bit of a dis- disappointing conversation, but uh, I think it's important that people realize that that Native women are still experiencing some of the deepest forms of oppression of any single group of people. I mean, again, if you, if you talk about what indigenous people are going through and then it gets further exacerbated by, uh, you know, by gender discrimination, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Before I get into it, though, let me uh, again remind people that we are listener-supported radio. Resistance Radio is not a great fundraiser for WBAI and WPFW, unfortunately. I don't know why, um, but I really feel that I've, I've got to ask this listening audience every week to just remember that this show is only possible because of the great stations that host it. So uh, I ask you to go to the, the pledge line. I ask you to go, if you're in New York City, to go to uh, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Two nine five zero, or go online at give to wbai.org. Follow the prompts to make a donation. You can become a BAI buddy. You can make a time donation. You can do a one-time donation. Whatever you can do to support this station and do so in the name of this program, I greatly appreciate it. If you're in Washington, D.C., and I am so glad to be a part of the, uh, the WPFW lineup, then I ask you to, to support this station as well. I ask you to go to the, to the WPFW fund line, uh, pledge drive line, which is 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or go online um, at WPFWFM.org and follow the prompts there. Um, we, need, we need your support. I know we're just finishing up winter fund drives, but uh, we are really in a need all the time. And since this... These stations are listener-supported stations. We only exist um, on your generosity. So we ask that you support the stations. All right, International Women's Month. Uh, They just had International Women's Day just the other day. And not a whole lot of indigenous women's uh, news in much of what I've heard anywhere. So let me run some of the numbers, and, and they, aren't, they aren't good, folks. Indigenous women murdered at 10 times the national average. 10 times the national average. And it's actually worse on the Canadian side than on the U.S. side. Indigenous women are three times more likely to experience violence in the United States, six times more likely in Canada. One in three in, uh, Native women are sexually assaulted in, uh, in their lifetime. And 70% of those Crimes are committed by non-Native people. We have been really powerless as Native people within any justice system, ours, our own or outside, to do anything about it. In 2013, the Violence Against Women Act introduced a pilot program that let some, and very few at that, ter- Native territories use their their tribal police and tribal courts to prosecute non-native um, uh, violations, violations by non-native people, predominantly men. So let's not beat around the bush here. This is about men uh, committing violence against women. So on a few territories, they did a pilot program. In 2019, the House, the House bill, Violence Against Women Act bill, um, pushed to expand that tribal jurisdiction, but the Senate would pick it up. So it's, it stays as this limited, and I don't even know if that pilot program has, is, is continuing today. It may have been a timed you know, deal with a, with a sunset clause for all, for all I know. So when a white man, or let me, let, let me phrase it, when a non-Native man commits a crime against a Native woman, in most instances, we can't legally do anything about it. And because of the lack of resources that exist in, in, in most Native territories, or around most Native territories, as far as state or county or federal uh, law enforcement, 
these instances never, almost never get, uh, not just never prosecuted, never investigated. That's why we have these, these high numbers. And you know, it's, this isn't just crimes committed by individuals. You know, there's a lot of that. And, and of course, those crimes committed by individuals, oftentimes when, when there's an analysis on why it is that women are more, Native women are, are victimized at a higher rate, well, it isn't just that they're targeted. They, they have been made vulnerable by policy. They've made, been made vulnerable by the abject poverty that has been imposed upon most Native territories. Residential schools and the foster care system that, that took children away from our families, let's be clear, those were crimes committed against women. When you steal a woman's child, whether it's to put them in a residential school or strip them away through in some sort of child protective services and then, then t literally tell the women that, that they are incompetent because they're being judged through the lens of, of, of white culture. I mean, the, the, when there was congressional hearings on the issue, there, were literally, there was literally a woman, and I, I heard this recording, and I'm not, not sure, she was obviously somebody who was involved with, uh, with child services. She says, it's better, uh, it's better that a child have two sneakers than learn to dance. So this was the opposition, and this was a woman who said this, by the way, a white woman, of course. Um, this was the view that somehow our culture didn't matter as much as whether we had clothing that was acceptable to white people. So this is what is, this is how the whole foster care and residential school, look, residential schools, the whole premise there was to take children away out of um, their existing environment because it, because white people had deemed it unsuitable. Well, they created that environment through their so-called reservation systems. They created the, uh, the, the unsustainable lives that exist in many native territories. And every time we've, we fought like hell to, to create some level of sustainability, it has been, we found you know, resistance at the state level and at the federal level. You know, and, and I've talked about it a lot, but I'll mention it again here. Even when it came to gaming, when we finally started carving out these industries that allowed us to, to raise a certain amount of public finance for our territories, create some jobs and that kind of thing. And, and this isn't always really successful because some, some of our territories are pretty remote. But to the extent that we've had any of that success, the federal government swooped right in. Said, no, we're going to put the state in business with you. And we're going to make you beholden to the, uh, to the state, either through your, your state gaming compact. And we're going to look the other way on the, on the oppressive revenue sharing uh, um, provisions that the state pushes on you as, as a means to, you know, to, for you to buy goodwill from the state. So everything that we do gets met with another layer of oppression, another layer of, um, of regulatory control by states and federal government. So we don't see the freedom. We don't see the opportunities and the, and the prospects for the future. And that hits at home. I mean, that hits at home, especially amongst the women. Look, we have a history of matrilineal societies in many native territories. And it isn't just about equality. It's about valuing what women represent in our culture. And, and it isn't, you know, equality in the sense that, that everything a man does, a woman, a woman does. No, we, we had separations of, of certain responsibilities. But there was, the, there was an equality in terms of the value that women brought to a community. They, they were not pushed under by male-dominant culture. They, they were not told the only way they could be equal to a man is they could do what a man does physically. I mean, look, I know there's a whole lot of people who think it's great that, that uh, women in the military in the United States and in other countries. But 
Is that really about equality? I mean, and is that what it takes? That we've got to put weapons in the hands of women so they could so they, they could be used as pawns in, in war games just like men are? I mean, I heard some one of these right-wing, uh, you know, talking heads say, well, until women are prepared to be bricklayers, then they can't demand equality. What? That, that's how you equate this, 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 this notion about valuing women equally to men? Look, the matrilineal systems were, were obliterated through male-dominant cultures and patriarchy. That was the first indoctrination that Native people experienced was white men dismissing the role of women. Now, take me to your leader. Who's the man in charge? And our men bought right into that thing, and our women became, became diminished in their stature in, in, our, in our societies. Why? Because that's what we were being exposed to, and, and we went right along with it. Hell, when the Seneca Nation changed its, um, its governing system from what should have been the clan system, but had been already eviscerated, you know, with male dominance, I would say. Um, and and it, was, it was actually referred to as the chief system. We didn't have a chief system. That is something that came out of this imposition of male dominance. But we, we now, when we study history, we always say, oh, yeah, women were revered, and they, they had the, these roles and responsibilities. But we don't talk about how those roles were diminished sometimes by our own hand because of that, that outside influence. When the, when the Seneca Nation dropped its chief system and, and adopted a constitutional system, you know, a, a written constitution, you know, crafted by, you know, with the help of white people, <laughs> women couldn't even vote. I mean, think about a culture that claims to revere women so that when they went to a, an elected form of government, they didn't even give women the vote. They, they put some provisions in there, talked about the, the, the you know, the mothers of, uh, in fact, the Seneca Nation have a, has a specific mention in the Constitution about requiring, I think, three-fourths or three-quarters of, uh, of, of Seneca mothers to approve any treaties, I guess. So they were given that level of recognition, but they couldn't vote in the elections. They couldn't run, run for office or any of that stuff. I mean, so it was, it was certainly not something that, that empowered the people as a whole. It just empowered certain men, usually men who were already very assimilated, Christianized, and, and all that other stuff. I mean, the fact that, that we put less of an em emphasis on the clan system that was handed down through the mother and more of an emphasis on what somebody's uh, last name, surname would be, which came from the fathers. I mean, it caused all kinds of confusion. We also get, get sucked into this idea of what, uh, you know, of, of native identity. Look, much of that identity, the reason we had a matrilineal system is because we knew that identity came through the women because the women had a primary role in the upbringing of children. Well, that got wiped out with residential schools. 83% of, uh, of, of our children, 83 to 85% of the children were taken out of the home. Homes that are, are, were already being obliterated by, by poverty. And look, Let's not forget that during the, you know, the, the parts of history where there were scalp bounties and, uh, and massacres, women and children were massacred right alongside men. So women didn't escape the violence of, of a male-dominant you know, culture. No, they, they, be, they were the victims every bit as much. And like I said, this idea of residential schools and foster care, those, those systems targeted the, what, what was being condemned as the failure of, of women to be, to be adequate mothers. And, of course, they're not given the resources to be, be, to be adequate mothers. I mean, they're not given those resources. And many, much of the things that our, that our people had to fight for was a constant struggle. Look, the fact that we have a strong level of resistance amongst Native women in terms of social justice, it isn't just about social justice. Resistance and, you know, protesting, standing up, that's not just about social justice. It's about empowerment. 
And it's, it's what our women have needed because it's what was stripped away. And like I said, the amount of violence that women sustain. Look, in, in, in Canada, in many ways, is the, there's more numbers on the Canadian side to, to parse than on the U.S. side. There's, there's just gross underreporting of, of, of all of this stuff on, on the U.S. side. But on the Canadian side, for instance, Native women represent less than 5% of the female population in Canada. You know, actually, it's close to 4.5%. You know, but Native women represent 20% of the women's prison population. Well, how is that? I mean, this, this, you know, we see this in the conversation about, uh, about um, the disproportionate number of black people in prison on the U.S. side. Are we going to suggest that somehow that Native women are genetically predisposed to be uh, to criminal activity? Or are we going to tell the truth and say that the conditions that we have been forced to live under through 500 years of genocide are unsustainable in the white man's model of what is proper behavior? Look, for most women, Native women, and, and Native men as well. The, the only pro decent prospect for the future or opportunities require leaving our territories. So what does that leave in our territories then? So if the, 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 the most ambitious, and I, and, I, and I say that with some sarcasm, but if we're going to suggest that the, the most successful Native people are the ones who left our territories. So what does that say about the ones who stayed? So if the only way you can find success or opportunity is to leave our territories, that, leaves our, leaves, that still leaves a population behind. And that population is going to have a harder and harder time to heat their homes, make ends meet, create an economy, well, what are you going to create an economy out of? Some of our territories are in the most remote places. And there's nothing wrong with living in a remote place. But the problem is our lands have been so reduced that, that they are unsustainable. We can't eke out thriving, prosperous lives on the small pieces of uh, land that, that we have been you know, resigned to. So if you're a teenage girl, what are you seeing for, the pro for, for your future? on the native territories. What you're, what you're seeing is, what's the best way out of here? So without there being any level of thriving economies in our territories, many of our people are, are looking for a way out. And some of that way out is a way out physically, but some of it's a way out mentally. Substance abuse, depression, suicide. Yeah, those are, those are ways out, too. And it's easy to condemn a group of people, a race of people, you know, and, and a race of women. To say, yeah, see that? They're just, they're just terrible people. They're terrible human beings. No, you've created conditions of life that will not sustain happy, happiness, that will not sustain comfort and joy. So we have generation after generation after generation, especially after being told literally, specifically, that you are incompetent. You can't raise children. You're, you, you are failures as, as parents, as mothers. So when those children who were stripped away from those, those mothers, the, the, those who do make it back to the after 100 years of residential schools, where the women, I'm sorry, the girls, went through a level of torture, sexual abuse, rape, murder, sterilization. I mean, the, the idea that, that, that girls, if they did get home, would go through pelvic examinations at some of these schools. There was, there was this need because these were these church-run schools they had to verify that, you know, whether their virginity was intact. And if they weren't, 
Trust me, those are the girls who are going to be victimized the most afterwards. So when those girls make it back to their territories and then they, then they raise children, where did their parenting skills come from? They don't have any. This is the intergenerational trauma we talk about. And there's nothing addressing this, folks. There's, there's nothing that's, that's, you know, that, that's addressing what our, these, what our women have gone through historically and what they're going through now in terms of the, the, the abject poverty that many of our territories represent. There's no equality on Native territories. You don't see just as many women on a tribal council as you do men. You don't even see women succeeding in the, in the trades as much as men. And part of it is, is again, gender bias. But, and when you take gender bias and racism and you combine it together, it's great to have a, a month that we talk about praising women. But what are we doing to help? What are we doing to help? I mean, look, there is, you know, something I've talked about in the past, cognitive dissonance, this idea that we know what we should be doing. We, we have some knowledge about our ways, but we don't see a practical place to apply, apply them or to live them because our lives are unsustainable. We're, we're, we're inundated with consumerism, capitalism, all of these things that, frankly, leave us wanting. It, it, you know, we aren't living the affluent lives that, that, you know, that our white neighbors are living. So our ability to even survive in this capital, capitalistic culture creates even more inequity. So we have this cognitive dissonance, this idea that we, we, we can't live the lives we want to live. And I don't mean just financially. I, I mean, we can't live the values that we want to live. You know, when I see some of the statistics that, come, that are trying to analyze the violence against women, the missing and murdered indigenous women problem, there's oftentimes an analysis on the level of sub substance abuse. You know, well, how many, uh, how big an a role did alcohol play in, a, in an incident where a rape or a murder took place? And see, that automatically starts to turn into victim shaming, right? And I'm not saying that, da that data isn't relevant, but how is that data used? You know, when we, we look at the, the age of the, uh, of the violence that happens to, to Native, Native girls, women, it's a younger age than any other group of people, any other group of people. We have young women who are being raped, girls who are being raped at an earlier age than any other group of people in the United States or Canada. So why is that? See, this data gets collected, but there's no analysis on what contributes to that data. Is it correlation or causation? And because we're powerless to do much about it. Look, I mean, there's a, there's a challenge I talked about last week in, uh, in going before the Supreme Court on the Indian Child Welfare Act. We couldn't even take possession and placement I don't want to say uh, possession, but placement of our own children who were in, um, in dire circumstances. Our children were being whisked, whisked away to foster care. After residential schools closed, they were, they were being put out to adoption and foster care. Finally, in 1978, when they passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, they still didn't give us the control. The federal government just took control from the states and said, we're going to place them with Native families. So they still didn't give us, they still don't recognize our sovereignty, just like with violence against women. They still never recognize our sovereignty. They just decide who we're going to give some sort of criminal jurisdiction to because we're not going to recognize sovereignty. 
we're just going to give them authority. With, with the Indian Child Welfare Act, and, and I look, I'm not suggesting that there wasn't positive outcomes, some positive outcomes out of uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And I'm not looking forward to it being stripped away, gutted away in Texas or Louisiana, uh, you know, challenging this thing in front of the Supreme Court. But the problem is that we're still not being recognized as distinct people that with distinct needs. And when a white woman says, well, it's more important that a, that a native child have two sneakers than learn to dance. I don't need that white woman making that evaluation. And yet that's what we live in. That's the world that, that native women live in. It is a constant lens of scrutiny. And, and look, you know, the residential schools we often talk about, or we talk about them in terms of the federal program, but here in Seneca Territory, the Thomas Indian School was state-funded. And at first it was funded through the state education uh, department. It wasn't called the New York State Department of Education the way it is today, but it was, it was funded essentially. It had some, uh, it's funding primarily through uh, state education. But at some point, they, through the funding um, of the Thomas Indian School and, and other schools, under the, the Board of Charities. And you know what? They increased the funding. They, they, they up the funding. But you know, here, here's what happened. The Board of Charities deemed Native children as deficient, mentally deficient, irredeemable. They, they looked at our children as a race of children as mentally deficient, deformed, mentally retarded. So that's why they stuck it under the Board of Charities because it was, it was stuck under, you know, as if we were, our children were mentally deficient. So they had to be institutionalized. They called them asylums, not schools. They called them asylums, mental asylums. And we were written off. We had generations of children written off as just mentally deficient. Boys and girls. Well, if, if you've already designated for 100 years women as incompetent mothers and children as mentally deficient, what's the expectation? And, and what are we going to, what's going to be the outcome of that? So, this is, this is the reality that we've lived in. We haven't lived in, in a, in an equi amongst an equitable society. We have, the state has not been our friends. The federal government has not been, look, they, they talk about the trust relationship. Trust is a great, it's a great word, right? <laughs> trust is a virtue. I trust you. That's, when I say I trust you, that means that I have enough faith in you, that, that I believe you. That's not what the trust relationship that the United States claims to have with, with Native people is all about. It's not about trust as a virtue. It's about trusteeship. It's about subjugation. That we are incompetent and that we need guardianship. We need the state and the federal government to be our custodians. Hell, even, even the, the Osage in the 1920s when they were the wealthiest people in the United States, the federal government came in and said, yeah, they're wealthy, but they're still incompetent. So we're going to put a white person in charge of every family's finances. So everything an Osage person spent had to be approved by a custodian, a guardian, a white person, a white business person in, in the area. And of course, they got screwed over by them. It's not like those, those white folks said, oh, we're going to make sure your money is spent wisely. No, they made sure just the opposite. They paid twice as much for, for a car or a carriage. They paid, paid twice as much even for a funeral or a casket. Why? Because they were all paying each other. Because we were incompetent, and that trusteeship, that custodian 
guardianship issue got was, was placed amongst white people. This is the reality, folks. So you can't just look at Native people and you, and you see this, essentially this epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women. No matter what, you cannot blame the women. You cannot blame the girls. You cannot, you cannot blame the, the, the LGTB or, or, the, or the men and boys who are victims of, of some of these, the, these racial crimes, racially motivated crimes. Look, you've got schools all over the United States, over 100 of them in New York State alone, that are still using Native people as mascots. Well, that doesn't just fetishize Native people as these relics of the past. There's also an over-sexualization of Native women in every one of those instances. You see it not just with the cheerleaders. Look, Pocahontas, the story you know, is a lie. It's, it's simply not true. The whole saving Captain John Smith or whatever the hell his name was, he made that up years later. He, it was never documented in real time. When he, what, once Pocahontas was taken to Europe and, and was, had her name changed to Rebecca and was baptized, married off to a white man and was like all the rage, the, the, the rage you know, in, in Europe, that's when John Smith says, oh, yeah, I knew her. Yeah, she saved my life. And then writes this account that, that is totally unverifiable. Why is it unverifiable? Unverifiable? Because it's not true. And, of course, Pocahontas in American history, American history, not Native history, is hoisted up as, as, this, as this hero. She was a victim of rape, kidnapping, indoctrination, and ultimately died in an early life because of, because of diseases she caught from white people. She never got to realize some prominent role in, in, in Native culture or Native history. She, she might have been the granddaughter of a chief, but that was taken away from her when she was kidnapped. So none of these stories that are told, that try to hoist up an, an, a Native woman as a, as a hero, many of them aren't even true. But the true heroes are the women trying to stop a pipeline, are the women fighting against missing and murdered Indigenous women, are the, are the, are the women who are trying to bring food sovereignty back to our, uh, into our territories, sustainability. The activist Native woman, again, she's not just an activist because she has a desire to solve social, ju social justice issues. There is that. But it's, but it's about empowerment. It's about taking back our voice, take, our women taking back their voice and their seat, not just at the table, but their seat in positions of power and authority and decision-making. Look, I don't want to, you know, play up some false sense of matriarchy it, because that's not our system either. I know a lot of pe Native people confuse matrilineal society with matriarchal society, and it's not the same thing. The reason we have a matrilineal system is because Historically, before residential schools, our children got all of their culture from their mother, more so from their mother than from, from their father. They got their clan designation. They got their names. And if they, and, and if, uh, whether they were, they were put in uh, titled positions for, for men or women, that still came from, from the women. I'm not saying that our men didn't have a voice. They did. But the women controlled, they controlled a big portion of, of, our, of our commerce. The whole agricultural systems of, of, of the Haudenosaunee was, put, was pushed and promoted by women. Women were our farmers. Women were our food producers. 
Now, the men may have been the ones to travel more so and be engaged in, in, in diplomacy, but the women were the, were the core of our, of our communities. And when Washington sends, you know, sends Sullivan into Cuyuga and Seneca territory, he says, accept no pleas for peace from those women. He knew that they were, he was sending them in to kill, murder men, women, and children, and to, and to destroy the source, one of the, the single sources of our, the power of our women, our food. He said, accept no, no pleas for peace. He says, let them know the terror of their chastisement. He wanted to inflict intergenerational trauma through the women because he knew, George Washington knew, that's how you get to the Haudenosaunee, is through the women. So as we sit here in a month that's supposed to be celebrating women and women, women's history, are we going to tell the truth about women's history? I mean, I read, I read a small piece that talked about um, some of the more prominent nat or women, both in black and, and, uh, and, and other cultures, that, that had to withstand abuse by their husbands. Because, again, women were deemed as property in the United States and in Canada and in Europe and in so many other parts of the world. Even in places where women had these positions of stature, that would be replaced by the outsized influence, influence of Europe and the male-dominant uh, culture and the patriarchy that came with it. The entire world suffered because of that patriarchy, because of that male-dominant culture that was that was allowed to infect worse than influenza or anything else, smallpox. For all of the things that we were infected by, patriarchy was probably the worst. And I say that because our women are still, still struggling today to stand up to the violence perpetrated against them by men. And look, and I got to say this, while 70% of the violence committed against Native women comes from non-Native men, 30% is still coming from our own. Our men have not been the models of respect and honor to our women. You know, well, look, we know that the role that alcohol played on our territories, and not by accident, by the way. I mean, alcohol and alcoholism was introduced into our territories by white men, by government officials. Look, they used to requisition barrels, wagon loads of, of, of booze, of whiskey and rum and gin to, to go into native territory for treaty negotiations. It was a part of what they used for, for negotiating. This is the kind of coercion that there was. The, the person that many native people, many Haudenosaunee regard as a prophet who they falsely attribute the name Handsome Lake to because Skunya uh, Dorio was a title, it wasn't a name. But the, but the, the man they, they call Handsome Lake, he was a drunk. The visions that he, he you know, that, that are claimed to have occurred to him came through alcohol-induced coma. And there, and there are all kinds of stories about that. But there's, it's undeniable the, the role that alcohol played in, uh, in this person's life, and in many others, too. And, it's the, and the crazy part is alcohol and Christianity went hand in hand. So while righteous white men, you know, could, could, you know, sling off Bible quotes, they were not, never put in the same position that, that Native people were, Native men and women. 
I mean, what, you know, people automatically assume when they think about alcoholism on Native territory, they always think about it's the men. No, it's not just the men. When you create circumstances of abject poverty and unsustainable lives and livelihoods, it's not just the men who succumb to these substance abuses. And that's why, as I said earlier, when they're analyzing these, you know, the, the very underreported levels of violence against women, there's always this whole checklist of, uh, of risky behavior that the women may have been engaged in and, and, what that, and how that contributed, you know, to the violence that they sustained. Well, and I'm not saying there's not a correlation there, but you still have to understand that that risky behavior is an attempt to overcome a tough life that was created by U.S. policy. So even if you're going to try to blame our own people, our own women, for some of what, you know, what they experience, the reason that, they, that, that some of that risky behavior may have occurred is because of the abject poverty that was created by U.S. policy. A hundred years of residential schools. Uh, and, that, and, I, and, I, and I always bring this up. We experienced the largest period of land loss in our history during, during that hundred years. We experienced the largest period of identity loss. The family. We, we, the symbol for our family is the fire. Our fire was put out. It was drenched by alcohol. It was drenched with blood. We didn't have the family to rely on. That, that matrilineal culture those, that matrilineal society was vanquished by residential schools, by government policy. Look, the governments really went out of their way to diminish the role of women in our, in our, in our societies. In, on the Canadian side, it's even worse. I mean, even, even when, when we had, you know... Uh, many of our territories that were matrilineal in terms of clan and nation and all, uh, all that kind of stuff. Canada says, no, we're, we're ignoring that. In fact, if you're a native woman, you can be disenrolled. If you, if you, um, on the Canadian side, you, you could actually lose your, your so-called membership, your band card by marrying a, um, a, a white man. I mean, it, it's the, the whole process of stripping away our, our, our identity started with the stripping away of the significant role that women played in our matrilineal society that, that, that was such an integral part of who we are. So it is really, really difficult to celebrate International Women's Month when we are still struggling to to replace and, and to reinstall and revitalize our matrilineal societies because they don't exist in many of our territories. Look, I live in, in Cattaraugus, on uh, Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. And while we understand clan designation, there hasn't been that flexing of power that the women need to do. I mean, it, it's starting. Look, the, the, some of what's, what's happening today is encouraging. But the problem is there's a skill set that has been lost. I mean, men weren't the only diplomats that existed in our culture. Women were diplomats as well, but we've lost some of that. So now we have women struggling with these new roles in, in terms of resistance and, 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 and uh, you know, protesting and, and, and you know, asserting power and voice. So we're not good at it. Our women aren't good at it. And they need to get good at it. But it can't be set up, you know, pitting men against women. And that's too often what, what you know, that's, it was men against women when they took that power away. 
But it has to be, it's the same thing that I, that I say when, when we're fighting racism. We need the people with that white privilege to use it to be anti-racist. Because we can't stop racism by ourselves. We're the victims of it. We need those people in the dominant culture to fight racism. Well, it's the same thing with this, with this male-female dynamic. Women need to be empowered by men because that power was stripped away from them by men. Oftentimes, it was stripped away by white men first. But Native men bought into that with their roles in the church and their roles in government. The idea that when the Senecas changed their governmental system, they literally call it the chief system that they, that they abolished. They ab that's what it says in the original Seneca Constitution. They abolished the chief system. Well, the crazy thing is we never should have had a chief system. It was a clan system. And how were those clans designated? By the women. Now, I'm not saying the clans were totally run by the women. We had clan mothers, and those clan mothers were involved in, uh, in putting up the men for those specific titles that, you know, that were designated for, for the 50 families of the Haudenosaunee. But the women had titles too. But see, all that got wiped out. And it did. I mean, you know, and, it, and it pains me to say so. Now, and even though we were pulled away from our systems of social structures, it doesn't mean we can't get it back. But we can't celebrate International Women's Month if we don't acknowledge the crimes committed. And look, when they did a, a commission on missing and murdered indigenous women on the Canadian side, it too was designated as genocide, just like the, the, um, the residential schools. Although I will say they, they tried to slip the word cultural. So rep, residential schools represented cultural genocide. No, they didn't. They represented genocide. But in the analysis of missing and murdered indigenous women, the failures and oftentimes complicity that the police and, and, and investigative bodies have in the crimes committed against women, because genocide doesn't mean you have to totally wipe out a people. It says in whole or in part, if you create the conditions that will cause a, a people to cease to exist, in whole or in part. So even if just a portion of our women are being targeted or made vulnerable by U.S. and Canadian policy, that's still genocide. Because, again, one of the, one of the, the five criterion for genocide, one of them is murder, one of them is violence, abuse, harm. The other is removing our children, taking them away. The other one is sterilization. In, you know, somehow preventing births within a group. And the other is creating any conditions that will deliberately cause the destruction of a people. Creating the conditions where people will cease to exist. Those are the five. And violence against women represents several of those, including taking children away from our women. And you know what? That's still going on. Not just on the Canadian side. In fact, one of the ways around the Indian Child Welfare Act was to use the border. You could have the Andrea Jolie or uh, Angelina Jolies of the world and the Madonnas of the world who can, you know, of, of the United States go into Canada and grab Native kids. And those Native kids are not protected through Indian Child Welfare because they came from the Canadian side. Or vice versa, for that matter. So there's a failure of U.S. policy to recognize our own authority and our own history, and then, and then just to whitewash that history, to eliminate it, cover it up. And in, and in doing so, we can pretend it's all good stuff. We can cite you know, the 
certain women in our culture or that, that come from our territories and say, oh, look at, look at how great and successful. Deb Haaland, Sharice David, Wilma Mankiller, Pocahontas. We can create these stories of success that totally undermine the truth. And I'm not saying that, that there aren't successes amongst our women. There are. But if you don't take the whole picture and understand what our women are really facing, the obstacles in their way, and those obstacles are greater for Native women, Indigenous women, than anybody else. Again, six times more likely to be sexually assaulted if, you, if you're a Native woman in Canada. Three times if you... One in three Native women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One in three. And you know what? In some places, that number is, is, is one out of two. I mean, that's a national average. And we, all, and we know that a lot of these numbers are grossly underreported. So what do we got to do? Well, we need to empower. We need to empower our women. And men have to play a role in that. And I don't mean empower them in the white world. I don't mean give them positions like uh, cabinet positions in the, in the federal government. I mean give them power within our communities. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's not even giving them power. It's recognizing the power that they have. That's really what it is. Most of the problems that we have with the dominant culture is a failure to recognize who we are. That failure to recognize who women are, who our girls are, who our men are. That's the, that's the failure. So this is the challenge. So even as we accept and we acknowledge some of the adversities that, w- that we're facing, we need to empower, we need to lift up the voices, and we need to develop the skill sets. We need to get back some of what we lost. That's why when I talk about residential schools, I say, no, I don't need reconciliation. I need restoration. We need restoration of our identity. Look, when I talk about restoration, sometimes I'm talking about land back, sure. But more importantly than the land, because the land is there. The land didn't get taken away. We just were deprived of the right to use it. But if our autonomy and our distinction and our sovereignty is recognized, the rest will come. But if every time we show the, the slightest glimmer of success someplace, you, you pass a federal law and state laws to try to diminish it, like the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, that's where the problem comes in. Look, what was built in the United States is anything but healthy. So we're not trying to follow your model. We're trying to create a world of our own the one we had. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.